SCP-7091. B is for Bloodborne. The concept of self-preservation is said to be universal in all living organisms, which makes sense. Every creature, from humans to dogs to worms to single-celled bacteria, have evolved to avoid things that will end their existence, for various reasons. For sentient organisms, these reasons are generally to avoid pain and fear, while the need to reproduce and pass on genes is present in practically every species. Humanity has continued to evolve over millennia to develop more and more ways to remain safe and healthy, and our will to survive has been demonstrated countless times. SCP-7091 is about a species' will to survive, although it's not humans, but rather something a bit more alien. This one takes place in a futuristic timeline of the SCP universe, in the year 2087, many, many light years from Earth. Let's take a look. SCP-7091 is a Dyson Sphere a theoretical megastructure meant to encapsulate a star in order to harvest most of its energy output, located in the Andromeda Galaxy, 1.865 million light-years from Earth. Despite being about 15% smaller than our Sun, the star here produces nearly the same amount of energy in 24 hours, as ours does in a year. This energy is siphoned off by the Dyson Sphere via solar arrays, and transferred directly to the fourth planet in the system, which has been named Crystallia B. The Dyson Sphere and star are tidally locked with Crystallia B, although how this is possible given the distance and relative size difference is unknown. The surface of the planet is hypothesized to have been overtaken and altered by the abundance of a telepathic, parasitic black mold. This hypothesis is supported by the ruins of a now-collapsed, space-faring civilization on the planet, but due to the high concentration of the mold on the planet's surface and moons, a thorough investigation is not possible at this time. The mold causes cells to regenerate exponentially faster than normal, while also removing all motor control and autonomous bodily function in infected, sapient organisms while not affecting higher cognition. It's also capable of combining atoms of organic matter to inorganic matter, as well as combining the atoms of inorganic matter with other inorganic matter if allowed to propagate unabated. An artificial construct orbiting Crystallia B, however, was discovered to have minimal amounts of the mold present on its surface and within its docking port. This was deemed an acceptable risk parameter by the Ethics Committee, so on June 8, 2087, an expedition was proposed by the Anomalous Astronomical Division, dubbed the Prometheus Mission, and was approved by the O5 Council. A three-person team of interstellar exploration veterans was dispatched to investigate the structure. The team consists of Lucy Cabot, Nathaniel Burr, and Jasmine Gibson all of whom have participated in deep space explorations into ancient megastructures over the last decade. They each are equipped with Class II hazmat suits, and a gun that fires both incendiary and ballistic rounds. 
Their primary objective was to investigate the artificial construct under the assumption that they can find living members of Crystallia B's inhabitants or non-contaminated objects left behind for study. Using an experimental warp drive, reverse engineered from Sarian technology, the Foundation is able to transport the three to Crystallia B at faster than light speeds. Footage from their body cameras show the station to be large enough that its entire length cannot be viewed without panning the viewport camera. It appears to be constructed of a metal alloy, with various seams where additional metal plates were welded on after construction. Several grooves can be observed on the exterior, forming paths and patterns that resemble triangles. Orange lights can be seen emanating from within. At the top of the structure is a device resembling an antenna, with a blinking red light at the end of it. Burr reports that he's picking up a ton of organisms inside of the station, which Gibson says could be uninfected lifeforms or perhaps some remnants from the Sarian Collective. Cabot tells them to run a deep scan of the area out to 5,000 kilometers to check for any Sarian scouting ships or frigates. Burr proceeds to run the scan, and after several minutes, 14 vehicles show up clustered together on the exterior of the structure. Several dozen smaller clusters suggesting the presence of organisms can be observed within the station as well, although they are stationary. Burr says that those are Sarian ships, but they're way too close together. They're almost in exactly the same space, while also somehow still being distinct objects. They're also expanding somehow, and he says that metal doesn't move like that. Gibson says that the scanner isn't malfunctioning, so perhaps this is a previously unobserved anomaly. Burr also runs a diagnostic for local Hume levels, measuring any changes in reality, but everything about the Sarian ships meets their expectations of their tech. The only anomalous things he saw about that cluster is the presence of the mold. They seem to be growing almost organically, too, like a flower. They can't dock on that side, as there's too much of the mold, even though the anomalous astrological division informed them that the station was clear. They'll have to dock on the other side, so Burr brings their ship in. The bay door here is slightly ajar and off the tracks, and the mold can be observed in the docking bay. From the other side of the bay door, a small segment of a Sarian ship can be observed, connected to the bay door via strands of the mold. Gibson manually overrides the station's systems, and after several minutes of difficulty, manages to get the bay door open. As it slowly opens, however, the bay door mechanism experiences a malfunction and breaks off of its hinges, allowing the door and the Sarian ship attached to it to float into space. They bring their vessel inside, after which they close the emergency doors to the station's hangar and power down their ship. The team then disembarks, with their pistols drawn and flashlights active. The interior of the structure appears abandoned, with large crates of rations and medical supplies strewn about the floor. There are two large space-faring frigates in the hangar, both coated in a thick layer of rust and mold particulate. From the ceiling hang strands of interwoven mold, resembling cobwebs, reaching from the ceiling to the wall, where they descend to the floor like tree roots. 
within the strands, in between the wall and the leftmost frigate, emaciated humanoid cadavers can be seen fused, with their upper dermal layer integrated with the mold, leaving the remainder of their exposed dermal tissues black. What can be seen of the cadavers shows that they possess long limbs, approximately twice as long as the humans, and their heads are bulbous and enlarged, although that could be due to the mold infection. They possess four eyes, a larger pair near the top of their head and a smaller subset on the sides of the skull. The eyes of these organisms are glossed over, suggesting death, but when Cabot shines her flashlight on them, they track the light. Gibson says that they must still have some neural activity going on, but beyond poking them with a stick, she can't tell if the infected are still alive or not. She proceeds to override a mechanism in the hangar, moving a pillar-like object along a track that was obstructed by the web. The strands snap, allowing for the humanoids to collapse onto the floor. Several of them groan, while others begin speaking in Kraic with obviously strained difficulty. Gibson is a tad out of practice with old extrasolar dialects, but it seems like they're saying consume, expand, and grow, but she's not sure if it's them talking or the mold. Cabot assumes that they were marooned here, as the hulls of these ships are too damaged for deep space, and there's no repair tools or automatons nearby. A crashing sound is then heard from deeper within the artificial structure. The team members raise their weapons as Cabot approaches the door leading to the interior. She looks through the glass viewport, determining it to be safe, and activates a keypad on the side of the door. The door attempts to slide upward, but the girders are obstructed. Eventually the door snaps off of its railing, falling backward and making a considerable amount of noise. The team makes their way through a triangular corridor, where the presence of the mold has diminished significantly from the hangar and is now barely visible. Sigils resembling Kraic are visible on the walls, seeming to be hastily written, and Gibson translates them to be some sort of warning about a spreading infection or mold. Burr says that it seems a little late for them to have written about a warning but Cabot says that it wasn't for the Crystallians, it was for them. The team continues to explore the station in silence, not finding anything else different from what they've already seen. Eventually they reach a large sliding door covered in the mold, which is formed into vine-like structures. Cabot attempts to access the door via a panel, and despite a green light activating, the door remains sealed. Burr suggests blasting it, but Cabot wants to exhaust their other options first, as they don't know how the mold will react to live rounds, and Gibson says that ignited mold and ash could prove hazardous. They begin looking around for something they could use to pry the door open with, with Cabot finding a relatively small amalgamation of seared flesh and eyes bound together by mold, with the eyes tracking her movement. She shines her light beyond the mass of mold, revealing a corridor completely obstructed by mold and fused corpses. Gibson examines the ceiling of the room, finding loosely formed stalactites composed of rotten corpses 
relatively devoid of mold. A piece of muscle matter drips from the stalactite and lands right in front of Gibson, who steps back to avoid the splatter. At the base of the stalactites is a pattern of swirled flesh that resembles a face, although the eyes are closed. The face extends from Gibson's position deeper into the space station, disappearing into the obstructed corridor. Burr, meanwhile, rounds a stanchion-like structure with an active display atop it, with mold on approximately half of its surface. Burr is able to activate dials and buttons on its holographic surface, managing to turn on the lights in the area and activating a ventilation system. Gibson and Cabot come over to him, and Gibson translates some of the symbols on the display. She turns one dial below a sigil reading Entrance, causing gears and other machinery to begin turning. There's a loud stuttering sound, as if the mechanism has become obstructed by a foreign object. After turning a few more dials, diverting more power to this mechanism from other areas, the vines covering the door eventually snap, and the door opens. The three proceed through the doorway into an antechamber, where the floor is covered in mold in far greater concentration than elsewhere. The texture of the mold makes the floor partially adhesive, hindering the team's movement slightly. As they progress into the antechamber, the vine-like structures begin to contract, closing the door behind them. Deciding to worry about the door later, Burr checks his data pad, showing two organisms a few meters ahead of them, right next to each other. Along the walls of the antechamber are metal plates, twisted and reformed so that they barely resemble their original shape. Spheres composed of non-homogeneous metals and mold levitate above short pillars of mold arranged in two rows. Large display monitors are suspended at an angle from the ceiling, displaying flashing sigils that read, Ship Construction Complete. Ready to launch? At the far wall of the antechamber are two humanoid cadavers, their bodies approximately three meters tall, and likely possessed a large amount of muscle mass, judging by the patterns on the sloughing skin loosely resembling human muscle. Each cadaver has seven digits on each hand, and a digitigrade foot structure, although the cadaver on the left is missing one of its legs. The cadavers appear to be embracing one another. One of the cadavers turns its head towards the team and reaches its hand out. The mouth moves, but their speech is apparently impeded by the presence of mold in their throat. Gibson suggests that it might be hungry, but Cabot wants to avoid giving them any more biofuel. At the base of their feet is a journal, devoid of mold, which Cabot takes into a biohazardous material transportation container. Burr notes that the ships here were literally just a button press away from launch, and Cabot decides to pack it in and go home. With that, we're given the entire transcription for the recovered journal. Stardate, 12th Airmyth, Cycle 900 I cannot believe that it actually worked. Septimus and his legion of scientists have created a fully functioning solar siphoning machine, and now we can supply all of Christenia with power until the star explodes two decillion years from now. 
May the moons bless us for eternity. A problem persists now, though. We have conquered the star, bent the other twelve planets to our will, mapped out our galaxy to the smallest grain of sand on the smallest dwarf planet. But we are stranded, marooned. Our lifespan cannot withstand the sheer length of time it would take to travel even the short distance from our solar system to the next. If I were to board a ship right now, in my 100th cycle around the sun, I would reach Ceraminus as an old Cratian. My offspring would be well in their 300s, and their offspring would be preparing to have offspring of their own. This is not acceptable. I have brought this issue to Septimus's attention the other day. He seemed upset at this realization but in turn offered me the opportunity to work directly under him on a solution. What great fortune he has bestowed on me. I will not let him down. Together, we Cratians will conquer the universe. Stardate, 19th Airmyth, Cycle 900 The conventional machination of the flesh has proven to increase the longevity of a normal Cratian by 15% at the cost of routine maintenance and regular replacement of machine parts. A solution, for sure, but not a sustainable one. Eventually, all the raw material from our home and the other planets in our system will be depleted to sustain our population. We can find more elsewhere, but what happens when everything non-renewable runs out? Our species will perish, and it will be my fault. I cannot allow this. Septimus has assigned me a team of individuals I am unfamiliar with. Perhaps they were from one of the outworld colonies, or maybe from a moon I didn't know about. They are willing to work and do as they're told, so I suppose their origins don't really matter all that much, do they? One of them, a strange, tiny creature partially composed of metamaterials named Alf, has suggested that we convert from standard mechanized components to biomechanical ones powered by the sun. I don't think it will bode well, but for the sake of the mission, I will test it. May the moons bless us, wayward explorers. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy-on, easy-off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Stardate, 45th Air Myth, Cycle 900. We have been diverting power from the sun to the biomechanical creations as described in ALF's blueprints. So far, testing has been going well. Septimus is pleased, as am I. We may have this figured out. Septimus has begun constructing deep space exploratory ships on the space station orbiting Christenia. He has plans for 14 teams of colonists to each take one ship and explore a different section of our galaxy and maybe even the ones outside of our heliosphere. Our star maps are already full and beautiful of the worlds we have conquered, 
Imagine what they will look like when we have a legion of immortal explorers to constantly update them. I can hardly contain my excitement. I do wish I could join Septimus aboard the space station, though. He says my place is here, on Christenia, in the lab, working on a solution to ensure the perpetual survival of our species. But I miss his presence. I hope he comes to visit soon. May the moons guide us to immortality. Stardate. First, Haleth, cycle 900. Yesterday we began the spaceflight trial for the solar-powered biomechanical creations. All was well, at first, until they left Christenia's atmosphere. The raw, unfiltered solar radiation overflowed their mechanical parts, heating them up until the internal reactor couldn't withstand the heat. Every single one of them went critical and exploded before they could kiss the stars. I am a fool to have thought the solution would be so simple. I mourn for the loss of my people, and I am ashamed to have disappointed Septimus. I cannot even blame Alf for this, as I am the one in charge of approving, testing, and researching means to our immortality. I am a failure. May the moons forgive us, ambitious squalors. Stardate, 3rd Haleth, Cycle 950 Fifty cycles have passed, and we are no closer to a solution to mortality than when we started. I fear that hope may be lost. Alf has been a tremendous help to my plight, but they too are lost. Forty-five cycles ago we began experimenting by modifying the genetic code of newly hatched Kratians, isolating the gene sequence that is responsible for our inevitable biodegradation, and removing it. The children appeared normal at first. They aged and developed quicker than one would expect with their metamorphosis occurring during their thirtieth cycle, as opposed to their mid-seventies. However, despite essentially removing death from their genomes, each child experienced rapid, cellular degradation at forty-two. None from our trial made it to see their forty-fifth cycle. I am heartbroken. Never in all my years did I think myself a child murderer. Septimus took a short reprieve from ship construction to deal with the parents himself. I never saw any of them again. Alf assures me that we are approaching a breakthrough. I hope they are right. I wish I didn't have to make these sacrifices, but it has become clear that I can no longer avoid them. This is for the greater good. Stardate 14th Air Myth, Cycle 1075 I am 275 today. I felt a kink in my bones for the first time. I really am getting old. Alf and I unleashed a modified strain of the Xanthan virus on a small group of Kratians about 100 cycles ago, the same one that killed the Sarian Collective all those years ago. The modifications were difficult to make, and a stable, albeit non-lethal strain of the Xanthan virus proved even more taxing on us. But it was made, 
and now it is done. The older Cratian succumbed to the expected symptoms, violent coughing, sloughing of the skin, loss of extremities, but the younger ones appeared to have an innate inoculation against our little virus. At first they were unaffected, but as the cycles passed and they grew older, they did not show any signs of visible age or degradation. Their skin was as smooth as the day they completed metamorphosis. They were agile, alert, and quick to react. Unlike me, that is. This was it, the solution we've been looking for. I cannot wait to bring Septimus this news. May the moons bring us joy for eternity to come. Stardate, 30th Airmyth, Cycle 1075 Septimus has completed ten of his proposed fleet. I say his because, in truth, the ships are just repurposed Sarian transportation vessels he'd found abandoned on the dark side of Christenia. Still, who am I to discredit his work? Alf and I brought one of the infected Cratians with us to show him. They had proven immune to solar radiation, and this one in particular seemed to actually favor space travel. Septimus was pleased with our work. I was pleased with our work. When we returned the infected to Christenia, however, it began to decompose almost immediately. It complained of headaches, body soreness, felt like its organs were being crushed under the gravity of our planet, all the symptoms of lethal depressurization sickness. I am confused. Why was this happening so long after we disembarked? It does not make any sense. For all intents and purposes, those infected with the modified Xanthan virus were not able to leave Christenia or any planet and return without disastrous consequences. This is a massive setback, for certain, but one we can recover from. I am close to a breakthrough. May the moons provide guidance in our feeble pursuit. Stardate, 4th Halith. Cycle 1214 Septimus grows old as the last of his ships nears completion. I too am getting on in my years. I should have offspring by now, and they too should be rearing the next generation of Cratians into life. And yet here I am with Alf, stuck in the confines of this infernal laboratory, trying to understand why I cannot release us from the binds of mortality. I am 314, and I have accomplished nothing. Stardate, 16th Airmyth, 1300 Hope to explore the galaxy and beyond has fallen in our people. Alf has become infected with some sort of fungal growth they encountered while scrounging the caves for new test subjects. We've all but been abandoned at this point. When I walk through town, they point and jeer at me, mocking me and my team for our failures. I should like to see any other Cratian suffer under the same pressure as I. They would crumble in twenty cycles, maybe less. I attempted to treat Alf with the remaining medical supplies at the lab, but every insertion I made sealed before I could extract the fungus. Remarkably, Alf claimed that they felt well enough despite the obvious change to their physical appearance. I hope they aren't suffering from delirium. 
Septimus has been silent lately. I dare not approach him on the space station, lest he too look at me the same way the Cratians down here do. I will find a solution for you, Septimus, or my name isn't Alenia. Stardate, 14th Halet, 1389. Alf does not age. What I thought to be fungus in their internal structure was actually mold, black in color, and alive. I had looked into their internal structure with their consent, and found that all of Alf's organs, including those critical to survival, have simply died. They were overtaken by the mold, and were now operating under its instruction. The body is dead, and yet Alf remains, autonomous and of sound mind. Apart from a severe cough and the occasional expulsion of black liquid from their mouth, Alf is well. This is it. Tomorrow I will board a ship to the space station and bring Septimus the news myself. We are immortal at last. The mold does more than regenerate the body, as I have found out through observation. It adapts to the will of the host. Septimus and his construction crew have found renewed strength since their infection, and they are able to lift objects and metamaterials without machine assistance. Our food harvesters can collect raw materials swifter, our physical champions can perform athletic feats significantly easier and with faster reaction time, and our scientists, including myself, have shown enhanced intelligence. This mold is truly a gift from the moons. I am grateful to Alf for discovering it. The ships are nearly completed, and soon we will be able to explore with undying bodies. I find it harder and harder to think of anything else. Perhaps I am excited. Perhaps I am obsessed. Either way, I cannot wait to see what would become of our exploration. The galaxy awaits. 40th Airmen, 1450 My mind wanders sometimes. My thoughts are my own on most days, but every so often I find that I am absent from my body. It is as if my body is acting on its own accord in these moments when I am not there, but I cannot confirm this on my own. Alf claims to have felt the same way. No one else that we've talked to has, though. Perhaps it is the stress of expansion, of growth of the Cratian race, that is getting to us. Every time we try to conduct tests on ourselves, though, we find that the same circumstances occur. Recording devices that we set up are dismantled at our hand. Outside observers lose interest and leave once testing begins. Septimus hasn't responded to my correspondence either. I wish to see him, but I cannot seem to enter a ship. I heard it today. The voice. It was telling me to grow, to expand, to consume. It is a guttural thing, one that stems from a place I do not wish to know of. My mind fights for control harder and harder with each passing cycle. There are days when I cannot see my environment, and all I see is the mold. 
I can feel the fuzzy pricks of cilia behind my eyes and in my teeth and beneath my scales. I wanted to ask Alf if they had felt the same symptoms as I, but all that came out of my mouth was growth. The Kratians all look the same now. Their eyes are pitch black and fuzzy. Their scales are made of cilia. Their bodies are made of mold. I can hear them talking to me, though their mouths do not move. They whisper into my ear about the darkness, about the hunger, about the spread. I do not want to go into that dark place. Mold spreads at alarming rates. It covers a quarter of the planet now. Septimus is building automatons to help pilot a ship into deep space. There are not enough of us to escape the mold. It will grow. It will spread. It will consume. There is no stopping it. We are immortal. We are one. My thoughts are hardly my own anymore. I can hear the thoughts of my people echoing in my mind more intensely now. It is overwhelming at times, but there are moments where their voices are quiet. It never stops, though. The voices, that is. They cry and blame me for their suffering in this collective consciousness. They want freedom. I cannot give them this. I am always hungry, spreading, infected on space station. My hands hurt. My mind hurts. Can't fight for control much longer. Septimus worries. I am fine. I am everything, everywhere, all at once. I am Christenia. I am the moon. I am myself. The hunger is excruciating. I ate a Kratian, absorbed their molded body into mine. I felt full. I must eat again. The spread. Growth. The universe is a morsel, and I am a predator. It awaits my consumption. I will eat the stars. I am in that dark place now. I can feel myself slipping deeper each day of each cycle that passes by. I can hardly form a thought outside of the hunger. I can hear a ship approaching. I do not recognize the design. Someone please save me. All is well. So, the normal horrific assumption here would be that the team unwittingly brings back some amount of the mold to Earth, where it rapidly spreads out of control and consumes humanity, but I sort of doubt that would be the case. The Foundation, especially a spacefaring one in the year 2087, could certainly understand the threat of this mold and take proper precautions, especially as they were transmitted the contents of the journal before the team made it back to Earth. More likely is that the mold continues to spread across the galaxy, as there are clearly other spacefaring peoples out there, and eventually reaches Earth in some other way. 
The original ending for this article did indeed include Earth being consumed by the mold, but this more vague ending works a little better, suggesting a potential apocalypse rather than outright stating it. It's hard to blame the Kratians, as they were facing their own extinction and were looking for any way out of it, and perhaps they should have seen the threat of the mold as soon as Alf started vomiting black liquid, but that's how it goes, I guess. It's very likely that humanity will eventually reach their own point of desperation, but perhaps extinction is a more favorable path rather than becoming eternal vessels for a fungal hive mind.